is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 130 of A History of England. Last week we talked about the 1868 general election, fought mainly on the question of disestablishing the Church of Ireland, in other words, separating that Anglican Church from the state and ending the requirement on the Catholic Irish to support it financially. Disraeli's hopes fluctuated wildly in the run-up to the election. Would his Conservatives win a wafer-thin majority? Would they gain seats but fall short by a small margin? In the event, the outcome was devastatingly worse, as they'd lost seats, taking just 271 to the Liberals' 387. The Conservatives only did well in Lancashire. That's the closest bit of England to Ireland, and since people hate no one as much as a neighbour with different tastes, its anti-Irish sentiment was strong. We saw that its distrust of a Liberal Party seen as soft on Ireland cost Gladstone his South Lancashire parliamentary seat. In any case, however, when looked at in detail, the results weren't quite as bleak as one might imagine for the Conservatives. They'd more or less held their own in England. It was in the Celtic fringe of Scotland, Wales and Ireland that the Liberals had made gains. The Israeli's strongly pro-Anglican position was unpopular with non-conformist Protestants, strong in Scotland and Wales, and naturally with Catholics, most numerous in Ireland, where the Liberals did best. The Conservatives also won a couple of London seats, one in Middlesex, the other in Westminster, where the great liberal intellectual John Stuart Mill, the champion of votes for women during the debates on the 1867 Reform Act, lost to a bookseller and stationer, W.H. Smith. Do you recognise that name? It lives on in most British high streets, where you'll generally find a W.H. Smith stationery shop. Those two results were early harbingers of a swing away by middle-class voters from the Liberals to the Conservatives, a development that would prove crucial in the future. Still, back in 1868, Disraeli had every reason to feel depressed and even resentful. He'd worked hard to add a million voters to the electorate, and they'd rewarded him with defeat. The Conservative Party is focused above all on winning, and in the first election under his leadership, they'd lost. Some in the party began to look around for a new leader, and there were at least two senior Conservatives who could potentially replace Disraeli. One was Lord Cranbourne. Do you remember how he'd fallen out with Disraeli so badly that they were barely on speaking terms? He'd sat in the Commons for years, though now, following the death of his father, he'd moved to the Lords as the Marquis of Salisbury. I'll be calling him Salisbury from now on. The other was the Foreign Secretary, Lord Stanley, who had also moved to the Lords following the death of his father. That was Disraeli's old boss, the Earl of Derby. I'm afraid that means another and a more confusing change of name. This podcast now has to deal with two men called Derby the one we've come to know, the former Prime Minister and 14th Earl, and, from now on, his son, the 15th. Neither Salisbury nor Derby was, however, prepared to accept the suggestion that they take over the leadership of the Conservatives in the House of Lords, which might have been a good platform for a move against Israeli. Both had the decency, and perhaps the sense of self-preservation, to refuse that challenge. Still, Disraeli knew his stock was low. His reaction was to step back a little from active politics for the next year or two. He took the opportunity to write another novel, Lothair, viewed by some commentators as his best, though, I have to confess, 
I haven't read it, or any of the others. Once he'd absorbed the scale of his defeat, Disraeli broke with precedent and immediately saw the Queen to resign as Prime Minister. The convention had been to attend Parliament first, giving it the opportunity to rally around a candidate to take over as head of government. By going directly to the Queen, Disraeli reduced the authority of Parliament over ministers. Before he left office, Disraeli also asked the Queen for a favour. As a former Prime Minister, he had a good claim to be made a peer, but he wanted to stay in the Commons and keep leading the Conservatives there. So, instead, he asked for a peerage for his wife, Mary Anne, who was already suffering from cancer in an advanced stage. It was an unusual request, and Victoria was uncertain whether to accede to it or not. But her secretary advised her to follow the dictates of her heart. She did, and Marianne became Viscountess Beaconsfield, something she cherished through her dying years. When Gladstone replaced Disraeli, he launched his government on the stream of reforms we talked about last week. He personally could now turn to what he declared was his vocation. My mission is to pacify Ireland. The first step in that endeavour was disestablishment of the Church of Ireland. The Church of England has often been called the Tory party at prayer. Yes, the word Tory has stuck with the party, even after it officially changed its name to Conservative. The Israelis' Conservatives battled disestablishment of the junior branch of Anglicanism in Ireland if only to prevent its opening the door to something similar happening to the Mother Church in England. Gladstone, who never used ten words where he could dream up a hundred instead, spoke for three and a quarter hours introducing the disestablishment measure in the Commons. However, in a rare tribute, Disraeli said there was not a word wasted. Gladstone put in hours of attendance in Parliament, not only in major debates on the bill, but also in the committee stages when fine points were hammered out. He put in colossal effort, but it was rewarded when the bill passed the Commons with a majority of 114. Life wasn't so easy when the bill came before the Lords. Disraeli felt that its conservative and above all high Anglican leanings would make that house a battleground in which he had a better chance of securing a victory over the government. Here, though, he ran into a surprising difficulty. He came up against opposition from a quarter where he might have expected the strongest support in his fight against disestablishment, from the leading figure of the High Church Anglican right wing of the Conservatives, his nemesis, Lord Salisbury. He argued that the Lords had no authority to oppose a measure for which the electorate had just given the government an unequivocal mandate in an election to the Commons. That was an interesting new stance, a recognition that the elected chamber could secure a mandate from voters that the unelected had to respect. Don't miss the double edge to this concession, though. By defining circumstances in which the Lords couldn't deny the Commons, Salisbury was also claiming the right to defy them on others. Salisbury persuaded 31 fellow Tory peers to join him in voting with the government, a major contribution to Gladstone's majority for the measure. That must have contributed to Disraeli's sense of his loss of ascendancy over the Conservative Party. The Lords, however, though they had accepted the principle of the measure, felt no qualms about taking on the government over the details, mostly on its financial implications. 
This establishment meant the Anglican hierarchy in Ireland could no longer fund their churches and their livings from tithes, church taxes, collected from their unwilling and mostly Catholic parishioners. However, provisions included in the original form of the bill were both strengthened and increased by the Lords to protect priests' salaries and pensions in their lifetimes. As a result, Though the Irish Church Act of 1869 was morally and politically commendable by ending the imposition of a Protestant church on the Catholic Irish, it wasn't much of an economy measure. Besides, the real problem of the Irish poor wasn't religious, it was economic. It was to do with land ownership. That was the next item on Gladstone's agenda. He called 18 cabinet meetings between the 26th of October 1869 and the 8th of February 1870, dedicating the bulk of the time to debating a new Irish land bill. There was general agreement of the least they could do, which was to ensure that an evicted Irish tenant should receive compensation for any improvements he had made to the property. But could they go further towards what came to be known as the three Fs? fixity of tenure, fair rent, and freedom of sale. That's the sale of the tenants' accrued rights. Parliament wasn't going to wear the three Fs in 1870. That was unfortunate, since they'd be accepted in 1881 in a classic case of wasting the effect of a concession. There might have been real benefit to relations between Britain and Ireland had it been granted at once, but that was mostly lost when resentment was allowed to deepen for another decade. In debates of the land act, Gladstone found even Whig sentiment ranged against him. Let's remember that the Whigs, though they were eventually a component part of the Liberal Party, were traditionally the great landowners. They weren't at all happy about strengthening tenants' rights against their landlords, and even the minimal provisions Gladstone was proposing would do just that. That's because allowing evicted tenants to sue for compensation through the question of rent levels into the hands of the courts. It's unreasonable to demand compensation for an evicted tenant who failed to pay a fair rent, but perfectly legitimate to demand compensation in cases when the rent was excessive. The government used the term excessive in its original proposal. The House of Lords, with Whig landowners joining the Tories, changed that to exorbitant. The courts would later interpret exorbitant as meaning grossly excessive, and then the debate became one over what was or wasn't gross. Since the courts tended to come down on the side of the landowners, that left the legislation with practically no effect at all. Sadly, too, Gladstone accompanied the Act with yet another Irish coercion bill, giving the courts special powers to repress political offences to deal with a new upsurge of Fenian violence. It also delayed the release of more Fenian prisoners, Previous release had won the government some popularity in Ireland, and when the prisoners were finally freed, the move was accompanied by a requirement that they leave the British Isles. That increased rather than reducing resentment, and strengthened the capacity of the Fenians in the United States to raise more funds and recruit more terrorists for their campaign. It was, as always with Britain's, or previously England's, relations with Ireland a matter of doing too little or doing it too late, or both. Gladstone was blocked by Parliament from dealing Ireland a fair hand, just as William Pitt the Younger had been in the previous century. 
pacifying Ireland might have been Gladstone's mission, but the government he formed in 1868 fell a long way short of achieving it. The running sore would continue to fester, and, it won't surprise you to learn, we'll be coming back to the subject very soon. Governments get tired just as people do, especially when they are reforming governments. At a personal level too, the sheer volume of reforms took a heavy toll on Gladstone, not just on the Irish issues, but in many other areas as well. As we saw last week, he made a personal commitment to work for reforms, even in some cases, when he was initially opposed to them. In international affairs, the government was also running out of steam, partly down to Britain's waning influence. We talked last week about the Franco-Prussian War. Gladstone tried to oppose Germany's annexations of French territory in Alsace and Lorraine, but they went ahead anyway. Meanwhile, Russia took advantage of Prussia's defeat of Austria in 1866 and France in 1870 to revoke the restrictions imposed on it after the Crimean War. Defeated France hadn't the energy to do anything in response, Prussia wasn't interested, and Britain hadn't the strength to take action alongside the rapidly declining power of Austria. In 1871, only 15 years from the signing of the peace treaty that ruled it out, Russia sent its navy back into the Black Sea. As Gladstone and his government faded, so Disraeli thrived once more. He returned to full-time involvement in the political battle. He rarely spoke at public meetings, but at one in Manchester in 1872, he came up with one of his most famous denunciations of Gladstone's cabinet. As I sat opposite the Treasury bench, the ministers reminded me of one of those marine landscapes not very uncommon on the coasts of South America. You behold a range of exhausted volcanoes. Not a flame flickers on a single pallid crest. But the situation is still dangerous. There are occasional earthquakes, and ever and anon the dark rumbling of the sea. It's a devastating attack. He presented ministers as still able to do some harm, though they no longer had the power to do any good. That's Disraeli back in full form, just as Gladstone was getting tired. Things were changing again, as we'll discover next week. In the meantime, why not catch up with the latest episode on our sister podcast, Who the Hell is Norfolk? Dedicated to the early years of Charles I's reign and related, sometimes rather remotely related, matters. Thanks for listening.